Welcome to the Berkeley Tech and Law Journal podcast. Today we'll be talking with Berkeley Law Professor Peter Minnell about patent law and the new challenges in patent eligibility. Professor Minnell joins us as a founding member and co-director for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. We'll be discussing his past piece in the BTLJ, which addresses patent eligibility challenges. This looks into the effects of Supreme Court decisions, such as the decision in Mayo Collaborative Services v. Prometheus Laboratories, and the new concerns calling for legislative action. This is an interesting topic that is rooted in fostering innovation, changes in business strategy, and legislative action. Enjoy the show! Professor Minnell, in 2012, the court uh, decided the Mayo case, which had an enormous impact on what is considered patentable. What did the ruling entail, particularly in regards to the inventive application requirement? Well, prior to the Mayo decision, uh, the patent eligibility doctrine was relatively straightforward and required only that uh, laws of nature be applied. And it was in the Mayo decision that the Supreme Court uh, engrafted onto Uh, the prior case law that there be a requirement that uh, laws of nature, physical phenomenon, abstract ideas be inventively applied. And what an inventive application uh, means brought in a whole bunch of uh, new issues relating to the other inventiveness requirement in section 103. So The inventive application requirement in Section 101 has to do with whether the the application of the law of nature was conventional, routine, or well understood, which is a somewhat different formulation than the Section 103 non-obviousness or inventiveness requirement. In addition, the inventive application requirement uh, involves ignoring the law of nature in deciding whether what remains is an inventive step, whereas under the Section 103 non-obviousness requirement, we look at the invention as a whole. And uh, did you agree with the court's decision? Well, I want to separate out sort of the policy from the doctrinal uh, issues. Uh, So if you're asking whether I agree with this decision as a matter of uh, the pre-existing case law, I would say no, I I don't agree at all. I think that the Supreme Court uh, went well beyond uh, what the statute requires and also what prior case law had required and has created, I think, a, a very, uh, a much higher standard for patentability than Congress intended. Uh, now, if you're asking from a policy standpoint, is this a good or a bad decision? My position on that is, is a little more complicated, but I would say that, that I, I am very concerned that we're creating an undue burden on uh, those engaged in bioscience research. that The statute itself says only in Section 101, whoever invents or discovers any uh, new improved process 
uh, machine manufacture composition of matter. And we typically focus on inventiveness in section 103. Now we're engaged in a much more complicated uh, parsing of these decisions and the courts and the patent office are struggling with those. In terms of the, the, the larger policy question, whether uh, laws of nature, which themselves were unrevealed, unknown, whether those should be the subject of patents, I, I think that we do generally want to get scientists and in investors to seek out laws of nature. Uh, we don't allow, and we've never allowed them to be patented in the abstract, but we do allow them to be uh, patented as applied. And so, so I, I worry that the diagnostic field is going to be badly hurt. Now, the other part of the, the debate has to do with software. Uh, and software has less to do with pure laws of nature, although an algorithm could be characterized that way, and has more to do with abstractness. And the abstractness problem of software is something that we previously had thought was best addressed and properly addressed under Section 112, the, the written description requirement. And I, I think that that is a very difficult problem to solve, and I think the eligibility of software uh, is relatively clear in that machines and processes are patentable. But again, on the policy level, I would say that we should rethink software as being treated the same as bioscience or mechanical inventions. I think software is a very different type of inventive field. And in my uh, research and some of my earlier papers, I had I had recommended against treating software as the same as these other inventions. And I think we would be better off if software were subject to different rules. But so long as they're part of the same system, I do think that we have to figure out a way to, to deal with the abstractness problem of software. So it's now been six years since um, Mayo was decided. How have um, the Federal Circuit and other courts interpreted the decision? Well, when the decision came down, I think there was uh, almost a, a shock wave that went through uh, the courts and litigators. Uh, I think everyone was surprised at how the Supreme Court had resolved the case. In fact, the litigators in the case didn't even brief many of the issues that the Supreme Court took on. For example, whether the term discover in the statute and also in discoveries in the, in the Constitution are uh, are part of the interpretation. And so we didn't really get uh, a, a decision that was anticipated, and it led to a lot of confusion. Uh, initially, the Federal Circuit, uh, I would say, was, was much more skeptical of software and uh, bioscience eligibility. Uh, and we had several cases out of the Federal Circuit, uh, which largely backed a much higher threshold for eligibility. Uh, and in data that I compiled for 2017, uh, there was a very high rate of invalidation in the district courts, often at very early stages of cases, uh, at the motion to dismiss phase or the uh, summary judgment phase. But in 2018, the Federal Circuit in two decisions, uh, the Berkheimer and the Atrix case, 
uh, read uh, the, the case law somewhat differently uh, and emphasized that there are factual elements in deciding whether a, an application of a law of nature or an algorithm is itself routine, conventional, well understood. And since that decision, the Berkheimer case in particular, uh, we now uh, have seen uh, courts backing away from resolving these issues early. And so I think we're going to see uh, a new phase in this evolution that focuses on how to try the question of Section 101 eligibility. We haven't yet had a case do that. Uh, we'll be getting some perhaps uh, early next year or the middle of next year. Uh, and that's just that's just uh, unexplored territory. And so, so right now, I would say things have shifted pretty dramatically from early dismissal towards uh, we're going to have trials. The other big development is that in the Vanda Pharmaceutical case, uh, the Federal Circuit read the, narrow, read the Mayo case very narrowly. Uh, saying that it only applied where the claim dimension was directed to the law of nature. And that decision uh, seems to have uh, led people to think that that the, the cases, uh, like the Sequinom case, uh, might well come out differently. And so there is, I think, a view that, that the medical diagnostic field might well be subject to patent eligibility. So, so we're right now in a, a period of, of, you know, fairly substantial revision of how the Mayo case is going to be interpreted. And how has the PTO reacted to this, this, this decision? Have they issued new recommendations or changed guidelines in any way? Well, uh, uh, Director Andre Yanku uh, has taken a much more proactive approach to how the PTO should should implement Section 101 eligibility requirements. Uh, the guidelines that the PTO has issued are focused much more on these recent decisions, the Berkheimer case and the Vanda case. And so they are taking, I would say, a, a more permissive approach to eligibility. And that's going to uh, hit the courts in a few years, uh, and it's certainly uh, creating more, uh, you know, more issuance of patents from these areas that were thought to be ineligible. So you mentioned that this uh, this decision has ramifications both for software and for medical technology. Um, what kind of problems do you see resulting, and it, will they have chilling effects on scientific innovation? Well, certainly people in the bioscience industries have raised concerns that for medical uh, diagnostics and other areas that are more closely tied to basic research, that patentability uh, was seriously in question and it was harder to, to attract investment to those areas. Now, those are hard things to measure. We don't have direct evidence of, of those issues, but certainly a lot of people in those industries have raised concerns. And I, I think that there is a, a fairly plausible logic to those concerns that 
Uh, it's very hard to do that kind of research, which is part of the reason we like patent protection is that it creates uh, a way for investors uh, to support areas that are are going to be very difficult to to uh, to solve problems, and and so in that sense, I think that that we do need to have a good uh, patent system protection for very hard, very risky areas of scientific research that results in things that help humans. And medical diagnostics, I think, fit that model. Software, for me, is a very different story. I don't think the patent system was that important to software innovation, and it's certainly been uh, subject to a lot of academic studies suggesting that we might have been better off with much less and maybe even no patent protection for software. I'm willing to say that a modest amount, shorter duration, you know, might well have been kind of the best balance of those concerns. But the software issues uh, have more to do with uh, vague patents being asserted and a lot of risk and uncertainty really at the back end after people have done their hard work. In, in the bioscience industries, there are a lot of problems with uh, commercializing research. You have to solve hard problems, and then you have to get through FDA approval of those products, uh, pharmaceutical products, medical devices. And that is what I think the patent system is good for, when you have a lot of technological uncertainty and a need for capital investment. Software industry is somewhat different, and I would say quite different, and rarely do you need large capital investment in software products. Also, software is easily protectable in many contexts through trade secrecy uh, and even through copyright. So we're just dealing with, with apples and oranges. I mean, they're very different, very different fruits, and we ought not to assume that the best solution for one is the best solution for the other. Uh, that said, we have to interpret a statute which does not distinguish between different types of fruit. And so we're, we're facing, you know, the problem of just interpreting words in the statute. And, and so, so, you know, I, I'm of the view that we can't solve the pharmaceutical or the diagnostic industry problems uh, in a way that will uh, exclude also protecting software inventions, uh, but we can perhaps address those other issues through Section 103 and through Section 112. Written description and the non-obviousness requirements uh, are uh, ways in which we do separate between these, these industries. But Section 101 is very broad, and it doesn't provide, I think, a very good way to, to make that division. And how have the industries themselves been responding to these decisions? Well, the pharmaceutical industry, the bioscience industries, uh, were initially, I think, hoping that the Supreme Court would revisit these these anomalies in the recent cases. Uh, as a scholar, I had uh, worked on uh, trying to trace how the Supreme Court came to its conclusion, and I and, and some other scholars uh, concluded that the foundation for the Mayo decision is, is really false, that the court misinterpreted a 19th century British case and 
and just didn't pay attention to the legislative history surrounding our our eligibility requirements. And that's the subject of the the Berkeley Technology Law Journal report that uh, that perhaps led to our discussion today. And I recommend people look at that report. We had experts from academia, from the industries, from government. Uh, we had uh, a former judge in the room. We talked through these issues, and there was a high degree of consensus that the Mayo decision was was fundamentally flawed as a matter of jurisprudence. There wasn't consensus on what we should do, and that's where the industries divided. Uh, I think the bioscience industries were uh, hopeful that Congress could fix this problem. The software industries worry that this is going to increase the problems they've experienced with with uh, weak patents being asserted, uh, with with uh, patent trolls, and so. In the aftermath of Mayo, there were attempts to try to get the Supreme Court to revisit these questions. And actually, a similar thing happened in the late 1970s. There was this case called Parker versus Fluke, which, which ironically or perhaps uh, appropriately was relied upon in the Mayo decision. But that decision raised a lot of concerns. But within a couple of years, the Supreme Court reversed course and the Diamond versus Deere decision uh, brought us back to the kind of standards which had prevailed prior to Parker versus Fluke. And so right after Mayo, I think there was some belief that there could be a Supreme Court uh, uh, revisiting of this question. Uh, I worked on some amicus briefs in the Sequinam litigation, and we felt we had a very good example for the Supreme Court to take on, and we could have gotten much better briefing than was had in the Mayo case to to get a, a, a clearer interpretation. But the Supreme Court didn't didn't bite. We didn't get cert granted in that case. And as the district courts have struggled and the federal circuit have struggled, we've moved towards the view that perhaps legislation is the best way to go. But the software industries aren't supportive of that legislation and that even though they're not saying that the Mayo decision is is a perfect decision or is is well founded. Uh, the fact that it puts another hurdle in the way of of the kind of uh, strike litigation, the troll litigation that they faced, uh, they're not fully on board. So we're right now in I would say an interesting time period because the law is shifting because of the federal circuit towards. I would say the older standards, uh, but there are also groups that are pushing to get some legislation in Congress. The ABA, uh, a number of intellectual property organizations have sp sponsored uh, le legislation, uh, and I think there are potential legislative solutions. Uh, in the coming months, I know that there are many conferences that are going to call attention to these issues. Uh, it's always hard to get legislation through Congress, especially if there isn't consensus. And so there may be some need for compromise between the two groups. And I've suggested in, in, in our in our report, we suggest that there, there may be some, some good balances that could be struck. What do you think that uh, the ideal legislative solution could be to provide clarity on these issues? Well, there's the ideal and then there's the pragmatic. So I'll start with 
the ideal because I've thought about this over uh, really 30 years of my career and thinking about the software uh, arts and how we can find a good balance. So, so I think key to solving this problem in an ideal sense is to recognize that all technology is not the same. And although we need to have somewhat capacious protection for technology, treating software like we treat uh, mechanical and bioscience inventions uh, is really at the root of the problem. And I think that we would do well to have a separate system for software, much narrower and shorter duration protection. That said, I don't see that as a pragmatic option right now. I would like it to be pragmatic, and I actually think it would be the better solution. But the political organization right now isn't headed in that direction. Uh, the major intellectual property organizations still prefer a one-size-fits-all approach to technology. And there are arguments that can be made in, in favor of that, that, you know, how do you define software? How can you distinguish? I think there are ways that one could do it. Machine language is different than many other things. And even though you could call it a machine, uh, to the extent that the only inventive part has to do with the coding, I think that could be distinguished in ways that would make it work. Uh, but in terms of the pragmatic today, uh, it's just, I think, a question of moving back towards the older standard of an application of a law of nature where the law of nature is discovered, uh, where there is some substantial human uh, 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 inventive elements in figuring out a solution to what may be a technical or a natural problem or natural uh, composition that that will improve uh, human health or solve some other problem. I think everyone can acknowledge or, or would acknowledge that, that that is the better approach in the bioscience industries. And then it's just a question of whether there's something that can be thrown in that will in you know allow the software people to come along. Uh, and, you know, I'm not part of those discussions directly. I've been in some rooms where people are starting to have those discussions, but often those are done, uh, you know, you know, at some legislative back room. And, and uh, you know, right now we're seeing more attention to that. The director of the Patent and Trademark Office is going around giving speeches that I think are going to create more awareness of these issues. And within the major intellectual property organizations, there are committees and people having those discussions. Right now, we're you know at somewhat of a, a difficult time just because uh, the committee structures and who's sort of running those committees relating to intellectual property in Congress are evolving, and so you know it will take a little time for that to sort out. But I think uh, after the midterm election, there will be some real attention put on this issue. Uh, it may take may take a few years before something like this can come about. In the meantime, though, I think the Federal Circuit has really pushed the Supreme Court to pay attention to this issue. Uh, Judge Lurie, in both the Vanda case and in his concurrence in the uh, denial of rehearing in bank in the Berkheimer case, has written eloquently about these problems. 
and I think his words will get attention. The Berkheimer case is going to be uh, put before the Supreme Court. There is a cert petition uh, that's pending, and I think that the Supreme Court may be pushed to take that on. And as everyone knows, we now have a somewhat new composition on the Supreme Court. Uh, there are two justices who were not there when the Mayo case was decided who might have a lot to say about this issue. And so if they were to, to see this as something that they want to take on, that would be two votes. Uh, and perhaps there are others. So I do think that the, the issue is, is clearly presented now. We've had six or seven years of experience under Mayo, and it hasn't been a pretty experience. It's, it's, it's I would say, close to a train wreck. Many of the district judges, the Patent Office, and the Federal Circuit are all struggling to make sense out of it. And now the Federal Circuit has taken a more proactive stance, and there's division within the Federal Circuit. There is, I think, more urgency to take this on. Well, until we reach any legislative or judicial clarity, have researchers been changing the ways that they uh, apply for patents or uh, the process by which they're going to structure their research? Well, right after Mayo, it was quite clear that you didn't want to, in your patent application, state that anything you were doing was well understood, routine, or conventional. In fact, the Sequinom case was was largely determined because uh, the discovery in that case was was quite significant, and to avoid any problems that they hadn't adequately enabled it, they said we're going to use routine methods to you know bring a bring about the benefits of this discovery that that cell-free fetal DNA can be found in the maternal bloodstream. This would be a way to to determine uh, genetic defects in a fetus without amniocentesis, a simple blood test. And so people are clearly uh, writing applications in a way that doesn't put, uh, you know, their methods into that well-understood routine conventional. On the other hand, you still have to enable the invention. So, so I just think that there's a little more subtlety in how people are presenting their enablement in order to avoid those kinds of issues. Uh, I'm sure there are many other sort of inside the prosecutor toolbox approaches. But now with the PTO guidelines, they provide a clear roadmap for how one can get through at least the PTO hurdles. But it remains to be seen whether the district courts and perhaps more importantly, the federal circuit will react to the, this newer uh, type of, of disclosure in, in uh, bioscience and software inventions. I think before any of that plays out, we'll probably get the Supreme Court to take on in one of these cases. I, I think it's it really is a problem right now, and one hopes that the Supreme Court will be uh, aware. Now, the difficulty is the Supreme Court rarely likes to say they were wrong. Uh, you know, in a parallel context, though, they did that in 2000. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in 1980, 1981, the Diamond versus Deer case, they much overruled a, a recent prior decision. Now, when you read between the lines, it's clear they have done that, but the, the opinion itself avoided saying it was a direct reversal. But Justice Stevens, who had written the Parker versus Luke decision, states in his dissent in Diamond versus Deer that 
the majority has eviscerated his recent prior decision. Uh, I would say since that time, the Supreme Court is even less likely to say they ever make mistakes. And so it's unclear how they will get around the Mayo case. And I think that's part of the reason, uh, you know, things have stalled. But but what has changed is the Federal Circuit is is reading the Mayo case very differently than they earlier had. And I do think that until the Supreme Court acts, uh, the Federal Circuit's jurisprudence has shifted the law much closer to what it was. Well, it sounds like it'll be a hot button issue for some time now. Thank you so much for walking us through the problems with Section 101. It was great talking with you. Thanks. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Miranda Rutherford and the rest of the team at the Berkeley Tech and Law Journal. We want to give a special thanks today to our guest, Peter Manel. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcasts so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact our editor at miranda.rutherford at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from podcasts. Talk to a lawyer.